Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back, everybody. Marriage Martini's here. Adam, Danielle. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I have another learning episode here today. I learned something new. It's like magic school bus for you. <laughs> I like these interviews that we do because I'm learning something brand new I've never heard of. As am I. Yep. Yeah. Well, right. I thought you kind of like knew about this stuff a little bit. I mean, a tiny bit, but, but you know, I'm so, uh, I... I know about it from television and stuff and like these shows that are on TV. So none of it's accurate. So to talk to an expert, you're like, oh, that's how it really is. Right. So, um, yeah. So the longer we do this podcast and the more people we meet and talk to so many interesting people, the more I see that there are so many different ways to try to achieve happiness. And like, there's no one size fits all when it comes to relationships. Um, we are learning more and more that is definitely not the case. Right. <laughs> and I just feel like we need to start talking about uh, some of these other communities and identities and bringing them out more into the open to show that we're all just doing our best to achieve some level of happiness. And that looks different for everybody. So uh, I read this book. I was really interested in polyamory. I read this book called The Polyamorous Next Door, Inside Multiple Partner Relationships and Families. And I was so fascinated by it that I asked, I reached out to the author, Elizabeth Sheff, and I asked her if she would come on the podcast. And she said yes, which I was thrilled about. So Elizabeth Sheff is one Dr. of the- Dr. Eli. Dr. Eli, yes. yes, Dr. Elizabeth Sheff, I should say, is one of the top and most famous researchers of polyamory. She has a PhD in sociology and is one of a handful of global academic experts on polyamory. And she's just trying to bring it out into the open and for people to understand better what the this culture and the community is all about. Um, so I read her first book. She has two others and she's working right now on her fourth wave of research. She's followed all these polyamorous over the course of their lives. And so this discussion, we talked to her about her research and about how she became so interested in polyamory. And she has her own story and personal experience with it. And she just takes us into a world that for so many of us, we just know nothing about it. And as the book suggests, the polyamorous next door, they are all around us and a lot of times living lives sort of under the radar because they're too uh, they're too worried about becoming exposed and what would happen to their life if people found out that they were living as polyamorists. Listen, it's a great interview, I think. She gives us a lot of awesome information and um, it's making me have more and more of an open mind about all of these situations. 
So enjoy. So hi, Dr. Eli. Thanks for being on with us today. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. On marriage and martinis, I have to say I'm a little excited about pretending to be a sociologist. Yes, it's fun. Yeah. And I actually thought about uh, studying that when I was in college uh, for a minute or two and then changed, but it always does seem like such an awesome, an awesome profession. Thanks. I find it fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's, and you've done so much already. It's incredible. Thank you. So we're here mostly to talk about polyamory, which is kind of your, your niche subject, right? Like that's sort of what you've concentrated on since you, uh, since you started writing and everything and researching. Is that right? Yes. Initially polyamory exclusively. And now I also look at, or more read the research on other forms of consensual non-monogamy as well as BDSM and kink. I actually do research on that because there's such a strong overlap between the kink community and the poly community. I almost needed to understand that in order to understand the poly folks. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, we started talking um, some about BDSM and one of our other and our we we had a sexual communication coach on, and we we spoke a lot about what uh, you know what successful communicators, uh, people who practice BDSM, are in the BDSM community, and how we can better learn from them with their communication. Certainly, ideally, some of them are really bad at it, and then it goes terribly. It's a disaster. Oh, okay. But when people do it well, it's really impressive. In fact, I would say most of the challenges around kinky sex come from people not communicating well, either that or not respecting each other's boundaries. But Right. And someone can also get hurt, <laughs> right? If you're not, yeah. commun- you know, well, in that, in that kind of situation. Especially if you don't know what you're doing. Right. Exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. 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 Hey, uh, Dr. Eli, sorry about that. This is Adam. Hi, everybody. Um, I had to go take care of the dog, so you didn't even know that I wasn't here for the last couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I missed whatever you guys were just talking about. And I, based upon I can hear Danielle's kind of laughter and uh, topic of subject here, I really kind of want to know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> we were, she was saying that she also is in, she's also interested in BDSM and researches BDSM uh, because there's such an overlap in polyamory. So uh, first thing I want you to do, because I think our audience are a lot like uh, Adam and I, although now I know more about it than I did before, and we don't, we hear polyamory and I'm sure like so many other people, the first thought we get is that image of polygamy. Right. That's yeah. the first place people's mind goes is you picture like the sister wives show, you picture, right. you know, one old man married to like four 14 year old girls. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and so polyamory is not something I feel like that's widely discussed and which is, I mean, which is why it's so amazing that you're doing all this research and bringing it out into mainstream more. But can you, first of all, tell us the misconception about polyamory. What really is it? What is it not? Um, you know, for people who are picturing what I what I think a lot of people are probably picturing in their head. Right. It's really super easy to confuse it with polygamy because they sound so similar. Polyamory, polygamy. Polygamy is about multiple partner marriage, and it's almost always one man with multiple wives. The other side, polyandry, is pretty rare. 
one woman with multiple husbands historically and contemporarily, pretty rare. But actually, across cultures and across time, polygamy is a lot more common. One man with multiple female partners, which is technically polygyny, um, far more common than monogamy. Pretty much in every society, rich men have been able to have multiple women, pretty much. And it doesn't always work the other way, except in polyamory, where it doesn't matter the gender of the person. Um, there's no rules around only one gender gets multiple partners and the other gender is exclusive with that person. So you can have multiple partners of different genders. You can have partners who are also involved with each other. You can have single people dating other people, you know, dating around and not having, um, kind of what you would think of as a primary commitment that's called solo polyamory. So one of the biggest differences between polyamory and polygamy is not only are not, it's not everybody's married. Some polyamorous people are and some aren't, but the biggest thing is that gender doesn't matter. It, you can have partners of any gender and any gender person can have other partners, not just men with multiple women. Um, although that's what a lot of people come looking for. Um, when generally, if it's an established female male couple who approaches the polyamory scene looking for a partner, they are frequently looking for a bisexual woman to add in. So effectively they are looking for the non-marital version of one man with multiple women, but that's hard to find. And usually they either leave disappointed or expand what they thought of as a possible partner to include just people. And they call those women unicorns, right? Yes, exactly. And the people looking for them are the unicorn hunters. And a unicorn because they're so hard to find, like they almost don't exist. So rare as to be almost mythical. <laughs> That's great. And the other term that is used for polygamy is, so there's ethical non-monogamy and non-ethical non-monogamy. So it's basically like cheating, which is non-ethical non-monogamy, when some people think they're actually in a monogamous relationship and they're acting like that. And other people have said they would be in a monogamous relationship, but are not actively fulfilling that. That's cheating, not ethical. Um, other forms of ethical or consensual non-monogamy include things like swinging and open relationships and um, monogamish relationships and relationship anarchy are all kind of different flavors of consensual non-monogamy. Yeah, when I was reading about it, my, my head was spinning because when you when you when you get out of monogamy and you start having all these different setups and you know there's so many possibilities, there's endless possibilities and there's all these different terms, it can get extremely confusing. It absolutely can. Right. You think your head was spinning? 
<laughs> I don't even understanding any of these words that I'm hearing so far. <laughs> yeah. So some of the, the, the most common forms of polygamy is open marriage. One of the more common, I mean, we, you know, we hear people talk about, oh, we, they have an open marriage. And even today, I feel like, uh, you know, if you, I don't know, I mean, where we live in the suburb that we live in, if Adam and I were to come out and say we had an open marriage, which we don't, but if we did, um, I feel like we would be the talk of the town. It would be very difficult to come out as an open, you know, as an open marriage without really being like a spectacle almost. Right. Yes. I think a lot of people don't come out if they have what they think of as an open marriage, because that that's more of like a swinging thing and swinging is more of an activity. Some people certainly take it on as an identity that they would need to come out about. But, you know, if like you don't necessarily have to come out as a tennis player and swingers, for some swingers, you know, it's a hobby. It's a fun thing they do. It's not like it defines who they are in the way that polyamory, for instance, is more of an identity. And those folks, because it's so much more integrated into their lives, like their partners, they're not just having sex in an isolated incident or geographically isolated or a time isolated place, like with swinging. Their partners are around at birthday parties and family holidays and, you know, like they are much more embedded in social life. So that would be something people would more come out about being polyamorous rather than being a swinger. I don't know that, you know, if, and open marriage is much more akin to swinging than polyamory specifically, because polyamorists don't necessarily focus on the couple, whereas marriage implies there's a core couple that then opens up and includes other people, but the core couple remains the most important element. And that's not necessarily the case in polyamory. Some people do organize their relationships like that with the primary partner and then other secondary partners who don't get as much bandwidth in a way, but for other people that they don't have that hierarchical Thing that prioritizes a couple over anything else. I have a question. Yes. Uh, we, we recently did an episode about sexuality and all the different terms about different possibilities of what type of sexuality you enjoy. I don't know that you enjoy. Is that, or that you. Well, that you identify as. Identify as. as? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Yes. And I learned the word um, pansexual on that episode. Yes. Is, does that relate to this in a way where if you're pansexual, you're kind of open to anything and anybody and you love everyone and there's nobody you wouldn't be with? Is that kind of how this is where you're not necessarily, it's a man married to four younger women or like the rules don't apply. It's whatever you're comfortable with, everything that you want to do and you're interested in is a go. Certainly for some people, absolutely. For others, they are fully heterosexual and maybe develop emotional relationships with other people, but are not interested in having sex with 
anyone who is not of a different gender than they are. Um, for other people, it's definitely a very free-floating kind of identity that, for instance, maybe they started out thinking they were heterosexual, and then just being in situations with multiple people, they were like, oh, I guess I do feel some attraction and follow that and realize that they had a wider sexual palette than they had initially thought. But that's certainly not inevitable. Um, some people already have a very wide sexual palette and then come to polyamory that way rather than identifying as pansexual and then seeking or identifying as polyamorous and then becoming pansexual. They're already want a wide variety of things and find it difficult to get everything they want in one partner. So they expand their partnerships. And you talk about uh, one thing that's really interesting to me, because I do think like when I think about monogamy, I see why there's, there, there are so many people who would say, you know, that just doesn't, it doesn't, it's not for me. It doesn't seem natural almost you know, to be with one person for the rest of your life. And there's so many, um, components to that, that I can think to myself, yeah, I, I get in, in a lot of ways. I get, you know, you talk about people, you get different needs from different people and, um, you know, different sexual um, experiences and different emotional connections. And there's so many reasons that I can think of that polyamory makes so much sense. But the thing that's so hard that separates it is that underlying, okay, well, on a selfish perspective, sure, it sounds great to, I would love to be able to go out there and have all these experiences and everything. But then obviously, on the other side, you have to be really willing to be accepting of whatever it is your your partners or your the people you're involved with are going to do. And that's the part to me that seems so complicated. Absolutely. It can be incredibly difficult. And I think that some people are by orientation monogamous. For instance, somebody who is deeply monogamous themselves and is not like when they're with someone, they're not attracted to other people, or they can notice that person and think, oh, they're attractive, but it doesn't have any kind of heat behind it or any like impulse or anything behind it. It's just kind of an abstract noticing of attraction. So if they don't want other partners themselves and don't want to share their partners, they might be monogamous by orientation. There's another end of the scale of people who are polyamorous by orientation who have no need to have exclusive partners. You know, they don't mind sharing their partners at all. That is totally fine with them. In fact, they probably prefer it and they really want multiple partners, like trying to be with just one person. A woman, one of my respondents described it as smushing her foot into a shoe that was three sizes too small. Like she could do it briefly, but she sure couldn't walk very far and she could, she'd have to take it right off. Like it wouldn't be a sustainable thing. And it makes was, you wonder how many people are in in monogamous relationships because it's the societal norm who really aren't meant to be. Oh, absolutely. I think there's a third category of people that, and it might be most of us, in fact, people who are curious or would like some sexual variety themselves, might want multiple partners for themselves, 
but do not want to share those partners with other people, like people who want to harem, basically. And I think both men and women find themselves in that position frequently when thinking about polyamory, like, oh, it is fun for me to think I could have sex with that cutie, but then my wife, my husband, you know, my beloved is off having sex with someone else? Really? No. That's the hard thing. That is the hard thing. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And it's hard to get yeah, over that. Right, yes. and and that makes you wonder, you know, is they're just, they're, they're, they must be just built differently in a sense like the, it, to have that that component to you where you just don't have that that piece of jealousy um and i i know in your book it, um it was equated to like you you asked um people and they said think of it as a parent who doesn't think they can love another child as much as they love when you're having another child and you worry about that that you can have equal amounts of love for more than one person but at the same time, that doesn't take away from the fact that you're going to be probably jealous of the second, the third, the fourth person, however many others there are. Exactly. And I think a lot of people, like the people who are polyamorous by orientation, some of them still struggle with jealousy occasionally, but it's not a huge feature of their personality. There are a lot of people who choose polyamory, who then also have to choose to deal with the jealousy it brings and they do they face it they deal with it sometimes they get over it completely sometimes they learn how to manage it sometimes it eats them alive and that's maybe not a good choice like if the jealousy is so intense and so painful for so long maybe it's not a good relationship style just don't put yourself through it be monogamous if you just can't stand it mm. yeah even if even in it's like simplest form even if I was just walking down the street with Danielle, I see a pretty girl and I'll look at her and, you know, check her out and then be on our way. If I saw Danielle looking and checking somebody out, I would think to myself, like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you like? What are you looking at? <laughs> like, no, <laughs> you know, so to even take it to the next step of, you know, what this is all about, it's just so mind boggling to someone like me, I think, and to you as well. Well, because we're so immersed in the monogamous culture. I guess. But I do, I mean, I do understand when you go through all the reasons of the connections and also being rebellious against society and societal norms and um, all those things that you see that people are looking for when they get into uh, polyamory. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I also want to, you have an interesting story too, because I wanted to get all those terms out there and everything, but you, you have an interesting lead in to how you became so uh, interested in polyamory. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. When I was quite young, I fell in love with a man who did not want to be monogamous, but said that he loved me. He said he never wanted to be monogamous or get married. And at first I was like, oh, well, whatever, freak. Like, you know, he wasn't going to be 
a long-term partner for me. I didn't approach that thinking we would really be together. Then once I fell in love with him, I was like, wait a minute there, mister. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, I don't understand this and it's really freaking me out. So um, as an intellectual, I intellectualize things that frightened me and I wanted more information. So I initially sought out polyamorous community as what I think of as a civilian, just like what would this do to my own life? More kind of like I'm really upset and freaked out about this and how do you do this? Like I cannot even imagine. How did he come from a polyamorous family? I mean, how did he even know? He's, he's just kind of slutty and <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately uh -huh. he did it really very poorly. We were the unicorn hunters, but I was a reluctant unicorn hunter. Okay. Um, so I trying to find, he was trying to find that oh, yeah. other woman who was exactly. going to and just be the third wheel. Okay. And I was super reluctant. I dragged my heels. I objected. Like he basically dragged me kicking and screaming the whole way. And then I was finally like, look, dude, if you want a girlfriend, just go for it. I'm so sick of this. And Which is probably a terrible way to approach polyamory, right? Exactly. Like you wore me down. Mm. Go ahead. You know, like you finally, I've exhausted my ability to deal with you around this. So just go. Um, and then it didn't turn out the way he had hoped. Like there was no line of women around the block hoping to connect <laughs> with him. You know, mm -hmm. he was rather disillusioned. Mm. But his dating gave people the impression that I was fair game. And then when a man was attracted to me, he couldn't handle it. He was like, no, we had talked about bringing in another woman. We had never talked about bringing in another man. And I was like, dude. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> wow. So I was, that sounds typical. Oh, yeah. But right, I was so, totally. I was so mad because I had said, you know, if this is just about you having sex with two women, tell me now, like, don't put me through this. Just go like get a couple prostitutes or something. If it's that important to you. And he swore up and down. No, this is a family. This is a family lifestyle. I could never, you know, like monogamy would kill his soul. And then of course, as soon as someone else wanted me, he wanted to be monogamous and get married. And I was like, that's it, motherfucker. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. And then you did end up marrying him though, right? Well, I was desperate. We had two little kids mm. and I was desperate to try to figure out how to make it work because I didn't, I mean, truthfully, if our, if I, I hadn't had kids with him, the instant he said, oh, well, now someone else wants you, now let's be monogamous and get married. I would have gone back to the place and packed up my shit and he never would have seen me again. I would have left him cold mm -hmm. at very moment. I was so angry. But our daughter was six months old and our son was just about to turn three. And I was like, I owe it to them to try. So for five years, the longest five years of my life, I did everything I could to try to get satisfied in that relationship and forgive him for the hell he had put me through. And I could just never get over it. I could never, uh, not only not forgive him, I couldn't trust him. And he didn't treat me in a way that showed me he really 
valued me. He treated me in a way that showed me he feared losing me and certainly wanted to control what I did, but it didn't come across as like true love for me, but more fear of loss, I guess. That's such an interesting distinction. Yeah. And so it's so just ironic now that I find myself in exactly the kind of relationship in a way that he said he wanted. I'm very happily remarried and still not polyamorous, but my wife has, she doesn't identify as polyamorous necessarily, but she definitely is non-monogamous and it works out, I would say, great for us specifically because she doesn't try to make me get her dates the way he did. Like he wanted me to be the bait for another woman. And she's like, no, I don't need you to be my bait. I'm doing my own thing. And she's not like constantly out there trying to hook up with people and taking away from our life in a way. She's more open to possibilities as they arise organically rather than out there spending a lot of time and money and effort looking. And it's been, we've been together for almost eight years now, and it's been so much smoother than it was the first time I tried it. And that's great. I could be polyamorous if I wanted to be. I'm just too lazy. I don't have that much time or desire for that many partners that I would be looking. I mean, if something just fell in my lap, I might be interested, but I've had a lot of opportunities and very few of them appeal. So I think I'm just not polyamorous. Right. But, but you, so you're, you're, but your marriage is just you and she, and then you and her, and then she is, is what, so is that like monopoly? Yep. Yeah. I would think of us as monopoly. Okay. So, because monopoly is when one of you, uh, one one person goes off and and has other experiences, but the other person just isn't interested. They could, right? They, I mean, precisely, they, right? And but I they could. choose not to, and you could, yeah. right? And that's kind yeah. of the difference of 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 this relationship. I mean, I'm sure there's a ton of other differences, but the you know big difference of she's you know the control issue obviously was, was huge a thing for yes. him. Major. Yeah. And now, how do you, how do you like? This is what I I don't understand. How does one how does how does somebody even know where to go if they're you know if they want to um, delve into polyamory if they're looking for you know you don't I mean don't just go to a regular bar and start set you know start assuming that people are going to be okay with um, with polyamory married person yeah right right because if somebody you know yeah. if yeah. if she went up to most people and was like I'm married but I want to spend the night with you they'd probably be like uh, no thank you I don't I'm right, not, I, don't, right. I, don't, I don't sleep with married people. Um, and that's complicated. There's got to be an app for that. <laughs> there is an app. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm not making a joke. Oh yeah. Tinder. Common. Right. Tinder. Right. Tinder probably is. Right, of yeah. Course. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. There's also um, some polyamory specific dating sites like Poly Matchmaker is one I can think of. Also, OkCupid allows you to select for. Um, I'm in a relationship and looking for more and various levels of 
seriousness, like just looking to play or looking to be serious, looking to fall in love. Um, so for my wife, we, we tend to hang out in pretty sex positive environments. So sometimes like she'll come to a conference with me and people will meet us together and just understand, oh, they're that couple that has the open relationship. And so, you know, sometimes people will make a move on her. And most of the time she's like, yeah, no thanks. Cause she's super picky. Mm-hmm. But um, sometimes when it just works out organically, um, it, the other person is okay with it. And, you know, for, for me, the way it works is if, as long as my needs are met, like I, I feel well loved. I feel like I get enough attention. I feel like she spends enough time with me and that she listens to me when I talk and she cares how I feel. Then yeah, as long as my needs are being met, I don't mind. Mm-hmm. And I get that. I get that because there are times when like, I'm exhausted. <laughs> right. You know? I like don't even have the emotional or physical capacity for Adam to come home and for me to like be a doting, wonderful wife that I would like to, you know, from a perspective of I'd like to, I'd love to be like, go, go, you know, go hang with somebody else tonight. It's fine. I'll see you tomorrow when I'm less tired. But the ramifications right. of that, I know myself, you know, I know what, what tomorrow would look like if, right. if that actually happened. And, and, you know, I, think to myself also a lifetime is a long time to not do a lot of these things right to not try swinging and to not try um same-sex partners or same-sex relationships it's a whole long time but it's also i i don't know if it's because we've been conditioned so much that we just are so solidified in this community of monogamy but i worry about the aftermath i always think about you know what is it the um indecent proposal, (laughs) right? Of like, she goes and she has sex with a guy. I know it's like different circumstances, but then it's like totally complicated after that, you know? And, and, and I worry about that. And I, from a perspective of, I would, I think I would be troubled by it. I do too. Yeah, I really would. Yeah. I'd probably make the rest of your life hell after that. Well, maybe, maybe, (laughs) maybe she could tell us how to get over that. How do you get over that? I probably don't. Well, some people eroticize it. For some people, it's really hot thinking about their partner with someone else and they get really jazzed. They learn new things. They bring new erotic energy home. No, that's not me. No. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, babe. (laughs) You're stuck with me. (laughs) No, it is. It's complicated. You know, it it really does. And you do say that um, that polyamorous... um, in a lot of ways, they share a lot of similar traits when you studied them and you studied them for what, like 15 years, right? You've studied them for... Actually, I'm, I'm in my fourth wave of data collection. So now it's been 23 years. But yeah, for the first book, it was, I wrote that one after the 15 year mark. Oh, yeah. oh wow. So almost right. And are you noticing, I'm sorry, I'm like switching gears here, but you, That's okay. it's your fourth wave. Are you noticing that people are more polyamorous or more and more willing to come out and talk to you than they were with the first wave and the second wave? Or is it, are you more easily able to get um, you know, people to, to talk and to... Um, you know, it's a longitudinal study, which means I'm following the same people across time. 
I'm okay. not like looking for new people each mm. time. So I'm following people as who started out often as like young parents and I'm following them as they age now. So the parents in my sample are like the, the Gen X folks and maybe the very tail end of the baby boom. And their kids are not, they're a little on the young side to be millennials, but they're whatever is next after millennials, Generation Z maybe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Gen Z. So I just follow that same group of people. I don't, I, I add new people as they become important in my core respondents' lives. So as they add new partners or something, or as they have children, or as those children then partner any of those partners who are willing to speak to me, I want to talk to them. And as the children then ha are starting to have children, their kids, like the grandchildren, are too young right now to talk to me, but I'm definitely interested if some of them will let me talk to them in a few years, you know, it'd be pretty cool. Yeah, it's amazing. And do you find that, like, is the the divorce rate with the primaries, there's, because there's usually like a primary marriage, right? In some cases, not in every okay. case. But in, in general, because I guess this, the divorce rate in general population in the United States is what, like 40 or 50%? Yeah, it depends on if you're talking about first or subsequent marriages. Okay. Um, slightly under half for first marriages and over half for second and subsequent Oh, that's marriages. interesting. Yeah. Is it about the same for polyamorous? You know, it's really hard for me to track things that way because sometimes they will, for instance, break up and you can't see the finger quotes but uh, that I'm making. Mm -hmm. they will stop having sex, but they won't necessarily break up like they won't be in a relationship anymore. They will continue what I call a polyaffective relationship where they're not having sex, but they have, um, they still continue to see each other as chosen family, basically. Often they will keep living together. Sometimes they'll stay married for, um, financial and insurance purposes. Sometimes poly folks will get divorced, but stay together. They'll get divorced so either one of the partners can marry someone else for financial or insurance purposes, or so it doesn't, they're not segregated off in any special way from anyone else. Like they dissolve the marriage, but the relationship itself remains as solid as it was. So it's, it's hard um, research. It's hard. It is. It's not. It's yeah. not directly applicable to average divorce rates. However, some people have had spectacular and painful divorces. Absolutely, where core couples have broken up, and it has rocked not only their world but their partner's world and their community's world. Because sometimes, if you look up to someone as a role model, like they've been with somebody for 20, 30 years in a polyamorous relationship, and then they break up, the community around them is like, oh no, if they can't make it, who can? Mm. And that's a common feature of sex and gender minorities in general. It happens with, and of heterosexual married people, when a dear friend who's been married for a long time breaks up, you're like, oh my God, are we okay, honey? <laughs> if they didn't make it, who can? Yeah. 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 
And it says it's estimated, is this right, uh, that about four to five percent of people living in the United States are polyamorous? Or have been in a non in a consensually non-monogamous relationship. So not necessarily specifically polyamorous, could be swinging, could be open, could be relationship anarchy or monogamish. Mm -hmm. But um, yes, so the population of people in consensually non-monogamous relationships is considerably larger than the population of LGBT folks, like all the entire LGBT world combined is smaller than the non-monogamous population. Wow, that's interesting. And, and yeah. that is really interesting. And it's probably even larger than that because that's not including the people who just are under the radar. Exactly. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about um, the kids who you've, yeah. who you've researched because I think that's so interesting too because uh, even just to go to school and your kids can be so cruel and any differences are not always so intolerant and accepting. Um, and I would imagine that it, that could be really hard for kids who live in polyamorous families um, and dynamics. What, what you, you know, it's not yeah. ironically because they okay. just blend in. So many kids have divorced parents that have remarried or are dating or never married in the first place, single parents, divorced parents, gay parents, remarried parents, multi-generational families. Like there's so many different kinds of families out there that these kids blend in specifically with divorced people. They look like families that divorced but got along really well and are still like hanging out even though they're dating new people or married to new people. And so the kids often, unless they point it out or something happens to point it out, it just blends in. So they, ironically, I had really expected them to say first that they experienced a lot of stigma and that people picked on them, but they are way less visible than kids like with same sex parents for instance, because same-sex couples are socially recognizable. You know, you see two dads with, you know, their kids and their dog at the playground. You're like, oh, that's a same-sex couple. But you see three people at the playground with kids and a dog. The mm. first thing that occurs to you is not, that's a polyamorous family. You might think that's a couple with their brother or their friend or their nanny or their sister or their employee or, you know, like there's a zillion things you can come up with before you think, oh, that's a polyamorous triad over there on the playground. Right. So what, what do they, I mean, what are their thoughts about it that you found? Um, one thing that really surprised me, I expected them to miss their parents' partners a lot more. I was like, well, does it suck when your parents hook up with people and then they break up and they go away? And they're like, yeah, that, you know, they sure kind of, but we miss all sorts of people and who they really miss are the parents, partners, kids, and pets. Because right. when the so parents get together, the parents go and like, go do adult things behind closed doors after giving the kids like all the remotes and a ton of snack food, you know, mm -hmm. like here are 12 pizzas and eight boxes of cookies <laughs> right. and yeah, that's all, right. that's all the really remotes. 
That's relatable. You have mm-hmm. unlimited screen time. Don't knock on this door for the next four hours. You know? <laughs> that so sounds they're... just like our house. <laughs> 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 yep. So they're like adult schmadults, but those kids, man, they were fun. They taught me how to put chocolate on the cat or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, but but they're not they're they're not ashamed. They're not ashamed of it. No, certainly not. And even if they think it's not something they would want for themselves, even if they acknowledge that some parts of it made their growing up more difficult in some ways, none of them would trade it. For an average family, that's a question I always ask. Do you wish that you had had a different kind of family? And all of them say, oh, no, no, no. I got so much out of this family. I got all sorts of role models. I learned so much. You know, they learn skills of emotional resilience and communication and relationship skills that they take forward into their lives that you know, maybe they won't be polyamorous themselves. Most of them are basically saying, I don't know, you know, like I'm too young to make that choice right now. One of them told me, I'm 15. I'm trying to learn how to kiss with my tongue. I don't know if I'm going to be polyamorous. <laughs> right, right. Leave me alone. Let me right, exactly. experiment. Right. Yeah. For right. asking me that question, it's like asking me if right. I'm going to be a dolphin, you know? Right. I don't know. Right. But it's also, you know, they probably also know that they have parents who are going to, who are probably a lot more accepting and understanding of whatever it is that they decide they want to pursue sexually or, you know, um, or because they, they're, they themselves are so liberal about it. Right. Yes. And the kids do tend to be pansexual, as you brought up earlier, at least in identity, even if most of their sexual experiences and contact has been heterosexual on the surface or heterosexual appearing, they don't necessarily identify as heterosexual because that's like a promise that they'll be that way forever that they don't want to make. Whereas pansexual means they can do whatever they want and no one ever can call them out as like, oh no, that's not allowed for pansexuals where there's not lots and lots that's not allowed for heterosexuals. Mm-hmm. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And where do these, where, I mean, if you're going to be polyamorous, is there, do you tend to want to move to a certain part of the country or, I mean, just because it's more accepted or? Yeah, I would say sex and gender minorities in general try to live in bigger cities because it's much easier to find partners and have privacy and have, you know, build community. So lots of polyamorous people. Um, tend to find those things in larger cities. Also, as you mentioned, there is this certain element of liberalism to polyamorous folks often. 
so liberal cities like San Francisco and Seattle and Los Angeles, you know, and New York tend to have very large polyamorous populations and populations of other sex and gender minorities. Whereas smaller towns like, you know, Rome, Georgia, for instance, I'm thinking has something like 20,000 people in it. You know, it would just be, first of all, much harder to find people to be in relationship with, but also much less privacy in terms of who's spending the night where. You know, if you live in a community where everyone recognizes your car, then they're going to know where you spent the night. Mm -hmm. Or if only one person knows, then 37 people will know 10 minutes later. Hmm. And you said that women, polyamorous women, tend to be um, more, you know, successful and financially independent and everything because when you live that kind of lifestyle, you need to be able to, if you're going to break off ties with people, you need to be able to support yourself. So more educated people or people with higher levels of education tend to have more liberal attitudes and more permissive sexual attitudes. So it can be that educated women are more likely to be polyamorous or polyamorous women are more likely to get an education, you know, in order to be self-sufficient and economically independent. Mm. Yeah. And I think that you, they have to have just stronger personalities in general. You, like, you have to be really resilient to be able to be constantly changing your dynamics and seeking different partners and meeting new people and being so social. Yes. And that doesn't work for some people. Some introverts tend to, for instance, like have only, you know, two or three partners and they spend a lot of time with those people and they don't necessarily like try to date a whole bunch. Some people like this kind of never ending kaleidoscope of partners is just super fun and stimulating and interesting but especially as they get older people tend to settle in with the partners that they've been able to figure out how to work out a life with and aren't dating as many new people although i would say certainly some people like if they become polyamorous after a divorce, especially from a stifling relationship, then some of those folks are like, I have stepped up to the buffet table and I want some of everything. Right. <laughs> I've definitely seen that. Wow. Do you, do you have any other questions? I'm, I'm, I think I'm full. You're full? <laughs> there was a lot of new stuff there. Yeah, you've got your favorite dish. That you <laughs> exactly. Have. The buffet, and it's good to have a favorite, you know? Like, no, I love, yeah. I love doing these, th these interviews because I'm learning things I've never heard about before in my life. I've never heard this word before. I never even knew it was a thing. And when I hear from people like yourself, it, it, it just enlightens the whole mechanics of it all. And it, and it really makes you understand that it's just, this is just another example of, I think one of the great things we're doing here, at least for this podcast, because it's getting it out there. It's getting the word out and mm -hmm. it's showing how there's, there, there's other sides to all of these stories that people might not really understand until they hear this. So. Right. Yeah. Well, how would you, if you, if you never got any education around it. Right. 
it on the surface, at least my initial reaction when my partner brought it up, boy, like 30 years ago now, um, was like, oh, does that mean I'm too fat or I'm bad in bed? Mm. Like, is this some lack on my part that drives you to need other people? Yeah, that I think that would be the first place I would go to. Yeah, and it's oh, yeah. painful and uncomfortable and... I, my, my heart just goes out to people, some people who their partners hear about polyamory and they're like, oh my God, honey, this sounds so exciting. We've got to try this. But the other person is like, no, I liked things as they were. Monogamy is good for me. What do you mean you want to try this? Mm -hmm. no. yeah, you both really have to be on board. Oh, it's so, it's so hard. When, yeah. You know, cause I, I definitely, I was that person dragging my feet the whole way and it, I don't think my partner ever understood how incredibly painful that was. Mm. A monogamous person to hear, basically, you're not enough, which is not what he meant. But mm -hmm. it's what kept occurring to me. And I think, I mean, in my relationship coaching practice, I mostly work with couples who one wants an open relationship and the other doesn't. And it's just very painful for both. I mean, sometimes it can work out, but it's hard. Are there, are there these stories available on your blog or your website that people can go and- Yes, and definitely. My Psychology Today blog has all sorts of research information like broken up into little bite-sized tidbits. Um, my own blog occasionally has longer pieces and I do podcasts such as this. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, can you say the name of the website again? Um, Psychology Today. Okay. I blog as The Polyamorists Next Door, which is the um, title of my first book. And my mm -hmm. name is Elizabeth Sheff, S-H-E-F-F. And I just read your book and um, I, I love, I mean, I loved it. I loved learning everything and you break it down and make it you know, simple enough for someone like me who really doesn't have a, a background in any of this. And I like to consider myself a very open-minded person or we're just not exposed to it. Right. So right. it's not that, you know, it's, it's certainly not that, um, you know, I think of any, you know, I associate it with any personal stigma I have against it. It's more just, I had no idea. So, um, you know, so for anybody out there who's interested in it and, and for, if you're at all, like me, who is sort of like, you know, I don't know that monogamy is the only way. I really see that any way you cut it, relationships and marriages are really hard. And any way you cut it, relationships and marriages can be really beautiful. So any, you know, whatever um, that looks like for each person, listen, if you can end up happy, do what you got to do. Rock on. Right. Totally. And one size does not fit all. A hundred percent. And, um, and I, I think it's great what you're doing and it's so interesting. And, um, so I'm going to put, uh, I'll, you know, we're going to link to the book and, and you said, so that was your first book. Um, and I have, I have, not, I have not yet read the next one. Ah, the next one is, um, stories from the polycule and that's an edited volume where people in polyamorous families just write about their daily experience from, you know, this completely sucks, to this is the best thing ever, to growing old and someone dying, to, you know, mm. having a baby. Um, just almost like a day in the life of polyamory kind of spread across all sorts of different families. 
And then the third one, super short, it's called When Someone You Love is Polyamorous. And it's a tool, like a brief kind of booklet thing that just explains what polyamory is from a research perspective and explains it like the intended audience is not polyamorous people themselves, but people who care about someone who's polyamorous. So it's something that someone would use to come out to their parents or their children or you know their adult children. I don't, it's, it's above like a, a little kid couldn't read it and understand it, but certainly a high schooler could. Mm-hmm. That's great. And then you have a, a fourth one you said that you're working on? Yeah, I'm working on the data from um, the data that I've just collected talking to the children of my initial respondents and learning how it's affected their lives. So people kind of focusing on the ages between maybe like 12 to 15 up to, I think my oldest person is like 27, maybe. So how was what what was it like growing up in a polyamorous family and how has it affected you now? basically, is what that book says. Then the book after that will be aging in long-term polyamorous families, more looking at the adult side of these folks who've been at it for, you know, 20 to 70 years. And Hmm. how's that like for them growing older in this relationship style that, you know, is clearly like freewheeling and and sexually voracious when you're young but what happens when you're 70 right right wow well so interesting and thank you so much for for talking to us and um my uh, pleasure thank you so much for having me on this was yeah, fun. it's great and you're you know it's 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 so great to talk to you and i'm so glad that you found happiness because it sounds like you went through quite you know a struggle to get there and so that's always wow i'm always so so pumped when I can hear that people have found what they're looking for. So, so that's awesome. And, um, awesome. And we'll, we'll, like I said, we'll, we'll connect people with all your stuff. And I urge everybody to go check her out, Dr. Elizabeth chef. And, um, and that's great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay. All right. Have a good night. Yeah. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.